The uh, Buddhist teaching, what we've been practicing here over these weeks, is, is in many ways a teaching on the truth of impermanence. This, is, this understanding is stressed throughout the texts and suttas. over and over, and, and in a way the whole path seems to flow from, from this understanding, from this truth. That which is subject to arising is subject to passing away. You know, and we hear it all the time. You might be ready to have us stop talking about this. You know, it's, it sounds like Buddhism 101, right? And say, enough already, you know, I, I get it. But then, you know, do we really get this? Do we really let it in? Do we know it in our bones, in our cells? You know, do we, are we really willing to let it in, you know, to soak in this understanding? Because if we do, if we are willing to really let it in, really soak in it, then this understanding is truly transforming. And it does open up the entire path and really gets to the heart of things goes to the heart of what the Buddha was teaching. But we can find ourselves sometimes falling into a, a somewhat superficial relationship with, with this teaching. You know, we hear it so much and it's so pervasive in, in these circles, Western Buddhist circles. <clears throat> it can become a kind of philosophical stance or a, you know, a belief that we adopt about some Buddhist concept. <clears throat> but if we really explore it deeply in the deepest way and let it touch our lives directly beneath our concepts on all that we believe about ourselves, all that we believe about the world, everything we think we know, if we really let it in, that it, it informs our life in a way that's radically transforming, really radically transforming. There's a famous quotation from uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. You probably may have heard this. It's a very simple quotation. He's said once, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. And, you know, we might have heard it before, and it, it's so simple, it sounds like just something kind of sweet, nice to say. And because it's so simple, we can uh, miss the truly profound understanding that, uh, that this statement points to. And if we really let the truth of impermanence in, if we really understand this and let it touch our lives deeply and let this understanding start to empty us out, then the response of kindness and love is what remains. The uh, great Indian saint, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, once said this very famous quotation from him. He said, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. And this statement, wisdom tells me I am nothing. This I am nothing, this isn't pointing to some kind of, of bleak, emptiness inside, you know, it really what it points to is, is a kind of clear, unrestricted space or an openness without center, without boundaries, without the separation of self and other. And so if we are nothing in this way, if this is the wisdom of being nothing, then there are no barriers in that openness in that space, no barriers to this boundless expression of love. And so being nothing in that way, we're inevitably, essentially everything. The uh, Buddha's discourse on metta, the Karaniya Metta Sutta that we've been chanting in the evenings, those who come for the chanting, this is one of the most beloved of the Buddha's discourses, I think. The, um, it's described by Andy Olensky, who's the director at the Buddha, Barry Center for Buddhist Studies next door. 
he, he described it as a jewel sparkling softly but compellingly through the centuries. It's a lovely description of this teaching. So tonight I'd want to um, examine this, this beautiful teaching, looking at the words of the Metta Sutta in some detail. Because it's a sh- this short discourse, but it's actually a, a rich, full teaching. And this practice of loving kindness, as has been spoken about in, in recent days, it's not limited to our formal practice that we might do in, on a retreat or when we're sitting in meditation. You know, we can bring this attitude of mind, of heart, to our life in all kinds of circumstances, not just on our cushion or on retreat. <clears throat> and there's a teaching which seems kind of simple and maybe obvious when we first hear it, but it has far-reaching consequences in our lives. The Buddha once said, that which one frequently thinks about and reflects upon becomes the inclination of the mind. And this points directly to the way that habitual uh, ways of thinking are formed. And if we pay attention, we can see how this process unfolds, how it happens. You know, it's this unfolding of cause and effect. It's just a natural process. And, you know, we can feel that we have no choice in this regard, as though our thoughts and and then our reactions to them are just unavoidable. But we do have some choice in this arena. And, of course, you know, a lot of our thinking does arise unbidden. We have to live with this. It's conditioning playing itself out, and we don't have ultimate control. We can't choose entirely in this realm. But we can pay attention and to some extent we can intentionally choose what we think about and reflect on. We can incline towards thoughts of love and care, thoughts of kindness and well-wishing. And if we do incline towards this in terms of what we think about and reflect upon, then this becomes more and more the inclination of the mind. Once, uh, quite a few years ago now, was when one of my teachers, Sayada Ulakana, came to, it was his first trip to the United States, and he came here to IMS, and was, I was his uh, attendant uh, for the time he was here, and he's helping to teach a metta retreat. And we were staying down at the teacher houses by the, the apartments down by the pond, the Gaston Pond, and, and we would walk up uh, some days uh, for the teaching here and uh, I remember walking along and, and he would be saying metta phrases in Pali very quietly to animals and people that we would pass by. It was very beautiful to see that this was just um, just the inclination of his mind, of his heart, was uh, this expression of love in just a really simple way, blessing and wishing well to the beings that we passed by. So before I, I go into the um, sutta, the, the words of it, I want to tell the story um, of when it was delivered. Um, I mentioned at night when we're chanting it that the, the metta sutta is one of the uh, paritta chants, it's called. It's a, a chant of uh, blessing or protection. There's a whole group of these paritta chants. And the story of the... Uh, when it was given, when it was, the discourse was delivered, points to this, this uh, protection quality of this teaching. So the story goes like this. There were um, a group of monks <clears throat> who were uh, going to be going into a retreat period for the rainy season. Uh, and they uh, were, went off and found this really lovely forested place. It was near a town, so they had access to a community of people for their alms and uh, big mature trees that they could practice at the foot of and uh, water there, clean water. It was a good spot. And so they all found a different tree. Each of the, this group of monks found a nice big tree to practice under for their, their daily abiding. And um, 
it said that these trees were the formed the foundation of celestial houses for these tree devas that were living there. And they they thought, well, okay, you know, maybe these monks will just be here for the afternoon. And um, so they didn't like to hover over them. Uh, it was, didn't seem respectful. So they moved aside with their deva families and, and then the monks just stayed on and on. And they felt like, you know, they had this occupying army had come in and booted them out of their homes. So they decided they would frighten these monks away with um, frightening visions and horrible smells and, um, you know, scary sounds. And so, so they, they did this. They made all these weird sounds and, and sights and uh, created a terrible stench. And they said that the monks became pale and were unable to concentrate and soon lost even their basic mindfulness. And uh, in, the, in the place where I read about this, it said that their brains became smothered by frightening visions and tragic smells. <laughs> and so, uh, as o- often happens, the, the monks ran back to the Buddha to get his advice what to do. And he said, uh, taught them this, he gave the discourse on loving kindness and said, go back and, uh, and practice metta and uh, chant the sutta. And so it said that they went back and the devas were very pleased and uh, decided to let them stay. Not only decided to let them stay, but made the conditions extra good. You know, really watched out for them. And um, of course, all the whole group was fully enlightened by the end of the rains, <laughs> as uh, often happens. <laughs> so... Um, So the sutta itself, it's, uh, it's kind of like a very lovely poem. And those of you who've been chanting it have a, a really uh, strong sense of this probably by now. But it's organized in kind of three parts. It has a threefold structure that uh, in a certain way parallels the <clears throat> Buddha's teachings of, uh, in the Eightfold Path of Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. And so the first part does focus on uh, Sila, and uh, as you've been hearing so much over the course of the weeks, you know, sila is really seen as this essential foundation for the practice, really rests on this. And uh, as the Buddha taught, there's no possibility for any real depth in practice, no real development, if we're not really established in ethical conduct. And this is emphasized throughout the teachings, over and over. He, uh, the Buddha emphasized that this truth. And uh, the first verses of the Metta Sutta address this directly. Um, the translation I'm using for this talk is a little different from the one we, we have for the chanting. It's from uh, Andy Olensky. Um, and it's maybe a little more um, literal, slightly less poetic, but it gets, there's some good stuff there. I'll just read these, the first uh, two and a half verses that speak to this uh, sila. This is what's done by one skilled in what's good, who reaches toward that most peaceful state. Such a one would be capable and upright, quite upright, well-spoken, gentle, without too much pride, content with little, easily maintained, not doing too much and lightly engaged, thoughtful, with a peaceful demeanor, and modest, without greed, among worldly things. Such a one would not do even the slightest thing that others who are wise would speak against. So this this emphasis on our conduct is so um, basic to the teachings, is such a foundation. And, And it's something that is refined continually on more and more subtle levels as our practice unfolds. It's not something we just get in place and then that's it. In, uh, in a book uh, by Thich Nhat Hanh called For a Future to be Possible, he uh, speaks about the, the five precepts that we, the basic precepts that we take here and that we hopefully live by. He calls them the five wonderful precepts. And he says this, the five wonderful precepts are love itself, 
To love is to understand, protect, and bring well-being to the object of our love. The practice of the precepts accomplishes this. We protect ourselves and we protect one another. Well, I think this is a really beautiful way to hold the, the precepts, to see them as a manifestation of love itself. And, you know, this commitment to non-harming, to living with care, with as much mindfulness as we can, it leads to a great gift, one of the greatest gifts we can offer to other beings in the world, the gift of fearlessness. If we can offer this gift of fearlessness to others, this is as another way we can see that the precepts are really an act of love and care. And this first part of the sutta also points to uh, the life of simplicity and renunciation that was practiced by the Buddha, practiced by the nuns and monks who were his disciples at that time. And this life of simplicity and renunciation that's still practiced by nuns and monks uh, today. I'll reread that part. Content with little and easily maintained, not doing too much, lightly engaged, thoughtful, with peaceful demeanor and modest, without greed, among worldly things. And there's a lesson for all of us in this, in this teaching, this encouragement towards simplicity in our lives and towards mindfulness and care with how we live and how much we use. You know, the way we live really bears attention. You, know, you could look at it in terms of how we use the resources of the planet, of the world, for example, and you know, how much do we use? Looking at how much we really need. You know, we're, we're a voracious species, we humans. We're quite voracious and we want everything and we want, certainly want the best stuff. And we don't leave a lot left over for other beings a lot of the time. You know, we have these economic systems that are, are based on continual growth as though that could ever be sustainable. You know, and then we foul the air and the water. We turn the landscape into a desert a lot of the time. And you know, we wouldn't tolerate this kind of behavior on the part of another species. <laughs> You know, we wouldn't do it. You know, if, if squirrels were behaving this way, we'd, <laughs> we'd try to rub them out. We'd say, well, the, you know, there's this terrible pest. But we, we hold ourselves exempt from this. You know, and we, we don't ask ourselves that often, what do I really need right now in this moment to feel happy and complete, to be content? You know, we can see so easily what we lack, all that seems to be missing But if we really look, a lot of the time we'll see that we don't need so much. You know, contentment can be there with very simple things, with a simple life, and that that a simple life brings its own kind of blessing and its own kind of contentment and happiness. And the second part of the uh, sutta, the metta sutta, is, is the samadhi part, you could say, in the sila samadhi panya model, the bhavana, the mind development, the meditation part of this. And this is the actual metta practice. It's described here. And really, uh, it's the sutta, it's the doing of the metta, the karaniya. It's the karaniya metta sutta. The word karaniya means a thing to be done. This is to be done. And it describes these qualities that uh, are being developed, that are expressed when we're cultivating this practice. I'll read that part. May all beings be secure and profoundly well. May they be happy in themselves. Whatever living beings exist, without exception, whether weak or strong, tall, large, middle-sized or short, whether very subtle or very gross, visible or invisible, dwelling far away or not far away, whether born or not yet born, may all beings be happy in themselves. 
and you know this section so much of it is about the inclusive nature of the practice of metta this boundless unconditional quality there you know all the different beings without any exception includes all kinds and this is really the heart of metta this inclusive quality visible invisible ones ones that we might not know about even those who are not yet born we include them and there's the one line that occurs twice in this part of the sutta it's my favorite part of the chant sabe sata bhavantu sukitata it's usually translated as may all beings be happy or sometimes may all beings be at ease and uh, in the <clears throat> translation that I read tonight uh, from Andy Olensky, he says, may all beings be happy in themselves. And he said this, and uh, uh, something he wrote about this sutta, he said, this line adds the nuance that the attitude of loving kindness is entirely selfless insofar as the emphasis is upon wanting the other person to feel happiness the wish that the other person feel happiness themselves, not only in a way that meets my approval or serves my ends, but as a pure act of benevolence towards the other. So there's this emphasis on this real generosity of heart, wishes others to be happy just as they are, happy in themselves, in their own hearts. This pure benevolence of well-wishing doesn't put conditions or says it has to be something that I think is happy. And this simple, simple generosity of heart, it wishes well to others, to oneself. It doesn't ask for anything in return. It doesn't seek any self-benefit. It's this totally unconditional offering. It doesn't demand that others be a certain way. May they be happy just as they are. And then in the next few verses, the, there's a bit of a shift and a little bit away from the direct practice and, and more towards a, a bit of a commentary on this practice, you could say. Some of the attitudes that are important when we practice metta meditation. And there's this beautiful image of a mother who would care for her child, uh, caring for her child, give her life for her child. It's introduced there, this unbounded nature, metta in all directions, no holding back. Let no one work to undo another. Let no one think badly of anyone, either with anger or with violent thoughts. One would not wish suffering on others. Just as a mother would watch over her child, her one and only child with her life, in just the same way, Develop a mind unbounded towards all living creatures. Develop a mind of loving kindness unbounded toward the entire world, above and below and all around, with no holding back, without aversion, without an enemy. Standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, as long as one is awake, one would resolve upon this kind of mindfulness. This is known as the sublime abiding here and now. This last line, sublime abiding here and now, it's uh, this reference uh, to the Brahma Viharas, metta being uh, the first of these four Brahma Viharas. Brahma means uh, divine or godlike, and Vihara is a dwelling place place that one might live or abide. So that line, this is the sublime abiding here and now. It points to the immediacy of this practice and the fact that in a moment when the mind and heart are suffused with love and friendliness and care, then, then in that moment it is a divine abiding. It's a heavenly place to live. You know, we're connected and we're complete in that moment. And then the third part of the, of the sutta is the panya, the wisdom section, you could say. And it points to the transcendent and liberating possibility of this practice. 
and in this in the sutta it's it's talking about one who's fully accomplished you could say it's it's discussing an, an arahant a fully enlightened being who's developed the path to its fullest and and someone in in whom the the forces of the the defilements the kilesas forces of greed and hatred and aversion they're they've lost all power in their mind and heart and there's a really different tone in this final verse of the sutta it's shifting away from the practice of metta and and moves towards wisdom towards insight towards the heart's release without falling into fixed views a pure-hearted one having clarity of vision being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world so there's a description of of some of the qualities of liberating wisdom and the first of these in the first line there the ability uh, to not fall into fixed or misguided views mistaken or fixed views views that often obscure the truth of things and the buddha taught that that our views are limited fabrications that they're born of thought and perception they may or may not reflect the truth of things often they don't and often our views what they wind up doing is more to confuse and distort our understanding than to help us see with clarity and the buddha spoke about wise or right view and he also talked about what he called the thicket of wrong views we get tangled up in all this range of misperceptions that lead to suffering to confusion we might look at this simply in terms of of this understanding of impermanence i began the talk talking speaking about impermanence and there's a very simple teaching in part of a teaching in the anguttara nikaya that speaks succinctly directly to this where the buddha said it is impossible o bhikkhus and it cannot be that a person possessed of right view would regard any formation as permanent but it is possible for one possessed of wrong view to regard a formation as permanent this part of the sutta pointing to not holding to mistaken or fixed views and then the next line refers to a pure-hearted one with clarity of vision sometimes it's translated as a pure-hearted one endowed with insight and integrity it's another translation i read again speaking of, of one whose wisdom is fully developed with this implication that that they're no longer capable of transgressions of conduct because of the uprooting of these unwholesome forces in the mind greed hatred delusion they no longer hold sway in the mind stream and there's this natural refinement of conduct that happens that's just this organic result of our wisdom deepening and we find ourselves less and less capable of of performing actions that cause harm become aware of these transgressions much more quickly and our attention to our actions and the results of them become more becomes more and more refined and then on the next line following that uh, describes the overcoming or abandonment of greed free from all sense desires free from the power of craving this cause of suffering this force that keeps us bound to the wheel of samsara and the cycles of endless wandering and then the final line of the sutta such a one is not born again into the world pointing to this final re- release from the rounds of birth death and rebirth and it's really i think fitting it's appropriate that this teaching the metta sutta ends in this way because this is what the buddha was always teaching this is the thrust of what he was pointing to really the only thing he was interested in pointing to the liberation of heart and mind and the culmination of the path and and so metta can be seen then as a direct support 
if not its own direct path to the deepest possible realization. This is a short excerpt from uh, the Tevija Sutta in the Diga Nikaya. It starts with the mm, classical description of the practice of loving kindness. One abides suffusing the first direction with a mind imbued with loving kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, and so for the fourth. And thus above, below, and all around, and everywhere, in every way, one abides suffusing the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hatred and without ill will. Just as if a mighty trumpeter were, with little difficulty, to make a proclamation to the four directions, so by this liberation of the mind and heart through the development of loving kindness, one sets an example, leaving nothing untouched there, nothing unaffected there. So it's traditionally said that there are 11 benefits that come to one who practices and develops metta. And they're listed in the Visuddhimagga. And I'll uh, go through these at least in brief. Well, the first one is that one sleeps in comfort. It says that one does not turn over and over and one falls asleep as though entering an attainment said that one wakes in comfort instead of waking uncomfortably, groaning and yawning and turning over as others do, one wakes in comfort without contortions like a lotus opening. Anybody waking up like a lotus opening? <laughs> and it's said that one has no uh, evil, bad or evil dreams. One has only auspicious dreams as though making an offering worshiping at a shrine or hearing the Dhamma. You know, as we develop loving kindness, as this becomes more and more the inclination of the heart and mind, and this commitment to non-harming and loving care, friendliness becomes more the way our heart responds to life. When our lives tend to become simple and clear as a result of this, there's less fear and worry in our lives. And, and so this does extend into our sleeping, dreaming, and, and how we wake up. So the fourth and fifth blessings, it said that one is dear to human beings and to non-human beings both. And we could see this just in the way that the energy that we extend into the world tends to draw back to it the same kind of energy. This tends to happen just naturally. And so if we extend metta, if this is what we put into the world, then metta tends to return to us. It's not that it's the only thing, but this is naturally happens. And so if our heart is developed in loving kindness, then people will tend to feel they can trust us because they know that we're not gonna harm them, that we have their best interests in mind. We're looking out for their welfare, that this, this matters to us. And so we can become a kind of a beacon of light in the world, a place of of trustworthiness and a safe haven for others. And so in this way, one is dear to humans. And I think I have time for this story. There's a really sweet story that illustrates uh, how one is dear to non-human beings. And I'm fond of the non-human types, so uh, I'll tell this story. It's um, an elder named Visaka. And apparently he left home um, to pursue the Dhamma and he traveled to Sri Lanka. It was said that the conditions were favorable. And this is how it was described. One can sit or lie wherever one likes. The climate is favorable. The abodes are favorable. The people are favorable. The Dhamma to be heard is favorable. It said that all of these favorable things were easily obtained there. Sounds kind of like IMS to me. (laughs) 
And so he went to this place and he ordained and became a monk and, and practiced for five years there. It's a tradition of staying in one place uh, for five years when, after one ordains. And then he set out to wander and he came uh, by stages to a, a place called Chitalapabhata. And he spent four months practicing there and then he laid down one night and he, he thought, uh, had the thought, in the morning I'll depart. And it said that there was a deva who was living in a manila tree at the end of the walkway outside of his kuti, outside of his hut, and uh, that this deva came and sat on the step uh, of the stairways by his house, and it was weeping. And uh, the monk Visaka said, heard this, and he said, who is that? And the deva said, it is I, Maniliya, venerable sir. Why are you weeping? Because you are going away. What good does my living here do you? Because as long as you live here, non-human beings will treat each other kindly. But when you are gone, they will start quarrels and loose talk. (laughs) And loose talk among the devas. And so uh, the elder said, if my living here makes you live at peace, that is good. And so he stayed another four months. And then again, he had the thought, I'll leave in the morning. And again, this deva started weeping and so he stayed on and uh, said that he lived there and uh, realized attained Nibbana there. Yeah. And so then the next two blessings, six and seven, deal with um, protection, this metta as a protection. It said that one is protected by the devas. The devas protect one as a mother and father protect their child. And it said that external dangers will not harm one specifically mentions fire, weapons, and poisons. And we don't have to believe in devas. That's not a requirement. They're celestial beings or beings that live in different realms. But we could, excuse me, still see how metta can serve as a protection. And it doesn't mean that, that nothing bad will ever happen to us. You know, we don't know all of the conditions that come to play in our lives. And, and these changes of life are are beyond our control and we all get gain and loss and pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow. But the protection of it, the protection there really comes more from how we hold and relate to all that life brings us. And this is the key to the protection there, is this relationship. And the more that we bring love and care and kindness to bear, the more spaciousness and ease we find in our hearts as we go through life. And this gives us a lot more uh, strength and balance of mind to hold the changes of life. And when our hearts and minds are open and spacious, there's a great protection in that because we can hold all of that comes to us with ease. Another benefit, it's said that one's mind is serene and easily concentrated you know, this feeling of loving kindness, when that's strong in the heart, it leads to greater peace of mind. And this kind of peace of mind leads to a sense of connection to life. And we're not depending on the circumstances of life to be a particular way for us to be happy. And this gives us greater access to serenity and to joy. And these are the proximate causes for concentration to arise. So that joy and happiness are proximate causes for concentration to come. And and as concentration grows, then we have the ability to gather and focus energy. Especially we we can reclaim a lot of energy that gets lost through uh, scattering, when our minds are scattered, when our hearts are distracted with worry and doubt and fear. We can reclaim a lot of that energy. said that one's face will be radiant and serene. This points to the way that, you know, an inner beauty often shines forth in people. And we can see, you know, we know how our inner state affects how we look. We see this in people that we meet. And just as, you know, ill will and anger would show on one's face and in, in one's body, an inner state of ease and happiness shows. And I think of His Holiness the Dalai Lama as someone who exemplifies this so beautifully. You know, people 
who have no idea who he is, they see his picture and they're just drawn to him. It's this inner beauty coming forth there. Said that one dies peacefully or dies in an unconfused way. This is another blessing of metta. And you could see that, you know, if we have habitual ways of thinking and acting in our life, then then these are going to tend to be what's present there at the time of our death. And if we spent our life feeling separate and uh, alienated from others, if we've developed cultivated states like fear and anger, if we've given way to ill will, to the force of desire, then these states are going to tend to be present in our hearts and minds at the time of our death. But if our mind and heart is filled with loving kindness, if there's greater peace and ease there, if we're inclined towards love, towards well-wishing, then that's far more likely to be what's there at the end of our life. Far more likely to, to die peacefully. And the final benefit, it's said that one is reborn in higher realms. You know, we don't, we may, the concept of rebirth might not be meaningful for, for us. It doesn't matter, but we can see how this reborn in higher realms functions in our moment-to-moment experience. We can look at it that way. Because in a sense, we're reborn every moment. And depending on the state of our mind and heart, we could be born into a, a hell realm or born into a heavenly realm. And so when metta is strong in our hearts, then we do take birth in a higher realm. And this is that divine abiding here and now. That's what that points to. So it's important to bear in mind that that metta practice, like any meditation practice, is a practice of purification. We've spoken about this a lot over the weeks. And there's a lot of times when we'll be trying to cultivate this quality of heart and a lot of stuff comes up that doesn't feel like loving kindness at all. Some of the things that, that come up in this process are difficult, painful to see. And so we have to be careful that we don't judge ourselves or this practice too harshly when this happens, if this happens. And we really need to remind ourselves that we're planting seeds, planting seeds of this wholesome, beautiful intention. We form these powerful intentions of love in our heart. And then these, these seeds that we plant, they're going to sprout and bear fruit in their own time, and we can't force them to grow. You could liken it to, to a flower bud. You know, If we have a bud of a flower, we can't force it to open just because we want to see it. You know, if we try to pull the petals apart, we're going to just destroy the flower. So we have to be careful if we have expectations about how our practice should look or feel and remind ourselves that, that it's patience and perseverance and letting go of expectations that are key to this unfolding. I think one of the most beautiful expressions of loving kindness of this heart of love uh, can be seen and found through the cultivation of what's called bodhicitta. And uh, this has been spoken about already. I think Annie spoke about this quite a bit earlier, one of her first talks. The word bodhicitta, uh, the word bod, bud means awakened, and citta is mind, heart, kind of both together. So it's the awakened mind, heart. And on a, on a relative level, you could say that bodhicitta is uh, it's the manifestation of compassion. You know, this heart of kindness turned towards suffering, the response of love in the face of suffering. It's the same movement of the heart as loving kindness, but attuned to suffering 
It's this wish for the welfare, the happiness of beings. On a more ultimate level, bodhicitta, you could say, is the empty, aware nature of the mind itself. It's kind of what, what's pointed, what was pointed to in that quotation from, uh, that I used during the beginning of this talk from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. The sort of relative and absolute levels. And so you could say bodhicitta in that way, the awakened heart, mind, it's this empty aware nature of the mind itself, mind that is free of the concepts of self and other. And so you could see loving kindness and compassion as the expression, as the manifestation in the world of this deepest understanding, the understanding of emptiness in the deepest way. Maybe in its simplest sense, bodhicitta reflects the understanding that our happiness and the happiness of others on a fundamental level, these are one and the same thing. And if we hold this understanding in mind, then we can approach our practice with this motivation that that we awaken for the benefit of all beings, for the welfare, for the happiness of all beings. You know, when I come into the hall here and, and I bow to the Buddha Rupa there, I bring an aspiration to mind when I do that. I say these words in my head, in my heart. May my life and practice be in service to and for the benefit of all beings. I make this aspiration when I bow. And I first began this practice some time ago and I I noticed this very dismissive attitude would come into my mind, you know, like a little voice that would say, yeah, you know, who are you kidding? But I would just do it anyway. I would go ahead and make that that aspiration anyway. And, And I've noticed a shift over time and that little voice has mostly stopped. And if it does show up, I don't believe it anymore. Not so much anyway. It's just the voice of Mara, it's not the voice of wisdom. And, and there's been a profound shift in my practice where making this aspiration is um, really a powerful, essential understanding. It's a real motivation for me. So I can encourage you to consider doing such a thing in your own words, in your own way. <clears throat> so I'm going to close tonight with a few lines from uh, Shantideva. I think they're just so beautiful and inspiring. They, they sp- speak to this quality of bodhicitta. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings, poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all they might need. My body thus and all my goods besides and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures. For boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering.
So we'll have a few, a couple more minutes of silence here and we'll let these words drift away. Thank you for your kind attention once again. And, uh, there's some walking meditation now and uh, we'll do the chanting again and there's a special treat for those who come. So a little extra incentive. <laughs> and you can come and leave after the chanting if you don't have the energy to stay. So please be welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.